Hey guys, it's Whitney. I wanted to take some time to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com. They're a national private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities. They do this with private accredited investor funds. They have a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and control over $250 million in equity from their investors. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easier for you to start investing in real estate without all the hassles. They even have an average 62% repeat investor rate in each offering they put together. They even have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to fix and flippers locally and across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. To help you learn more, they have put together a free passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download the PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. It would be consistency. You have to be consistent and persistent in what you're doing. Decide on what you like and just be consistent and persistent on it and you're going to be successful. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Sam Rust. With us today is Victor Cuevas, a real estate industry professional with over 30 years in the mortgage uh, industry. Uh, He's got a lot of extensive knowledge in both residential and commercial properties and is currently serving as the founder of Griffin Crowd and Capital. Victor, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Victor and I were chatting a little bit before the show, and you mentioned that you guys focus on Western states. You just landed uh, the ability to grant mortgages in Colorado. Victor's out of California. And we were talking about just California in general. The headlines would have you believe that people are leaving in droves and you know, capitals looking to leave California. Uh, but Victor, you have a little bit of a contrarian take on California in general. Would you mind sharing with uh, with us, you know, generally your perspective on investing in California? Yeah, well, I do. I mean, being a California native, I mean, uh, and being in the industry for over 30 years, there is a lot. I am a contrarian as far as California and investing in California because I see all the opportunities that are out there. I'll give you an example. Right now, the development in California, especially in the Alley County. So with this thing right now about the conserving energy and fuel efficiency. The cities are trying to drive people to use more of the metro system in all the inner cities. LA is very new with the metro system, not like New York. So there's a lot less people using the metro system around the county. And to promote that, they've lacked construction restrictions in the LA, in certain corridors. And the corridors are where, around where the metro system, the metro lines lie. And what it is is that they're allowing for more building and less parking requirements so that the idea is that people that live there can live there but then use the metro system so we've been coming across a tremendous amount of opportunity when it comes to development where we're buying for example two units on a 10,000 square foot lot and we're putting 20 units on that same lot because of the lighter restrictions which opens up a tremendous amount of opportunity if you know where to look corridors I'm talking about is you got to know where these corridors are and where these restrictions are, are being 
impacts that. And it is really, really good because of what we're doing, what how we engage our investors and what we offer our investors. Our projects, we give up up to 75% ownership if it's an equity uh, stake that the investor wants to do. And as far as debt, we offer as high as 10 and 12% return on debt investment. And it's because of these opportunities. I'm, I mean, it's just, it's just been great for us right now. That's what our take right now, our advantage. And then when you come into the, you know, you're saying, okay, have a uh, student housing. There's certain universities and like, for example, USC here in California, tremendous amount of opportunities around the USC area to buy properties and develop student housing. But you got to know what the requirements are or what they allow you to do. But it's very, very good. I think that's something of a misnomer, or maybe just people painting with a broad brush. But I know I'm in the Colorado market. You know, we tend to invest in in areas across the Rockies, which are a little bit more business friendly, I would say broadly than California. Um, and there's this idea that it's it's impossible to make money in real estate in California or, or, or if you were investing now. And that's just simply not the case. The rules are different. And as you were kind of explaining your thesis on California investing, you mentioned the rules, the corridors, places to look. It really is very niche. And yet in those niches, you guys are finding a tremendous amount of success. Tremendous amount. So we have groups of, in my company, we have groups of people contacting homeowners in these certain corridors, asking if they want to sell their property. If they don't want to sell, perfect. We'll partner up with them. They put up their property as the investment, the true value of the property right now at the current time. We put up the money of the construction and the buildup and become long-term partners, which allows us to help somebody that doesn't have the experience, doesn't have the, they don't know have any know-how as far as the construction, where to go, what they can do. I mean, we've been fortunate to do uh, several partnerships with homeowners that did not want to sell, which is fine, but they didn't know the opportunities that they have in their same property. That's fascinating. I have not heard of somebody doing that before where you're bringing them in as an equity partner. Now, are these homeowners? Are they people who own rentals? Is it all the above? Is homeowners and people who own rentals. We're looking in these corridors. We're contacting homeowners to see if they were interested in selling at all at today's market, which is a good market. And if they're not, we take that value and use that as their investment into the project. And it's a win-win for everybody because they get to, all of a sudden, there's three or four units or two units now become 15, 18 units. They receive rental income and a higher value of equity. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, I love that because I get to help people that they had no idea they can do this previously. Yeah, you're converting that property into its highest and best use. Now, you're also dealing with a, a subset of people who generally are not very aware of what you do in the real estate realm. So I would imagine that there would be some barriers just even in broaching that conversation. How do you bridge that gap and build trust with people to enable a partnership like that to happen? Because ultimately, they do have to trust that you're going to see the project through, you're going to bring the right capital. What does that process look like? It's a good question. And it's more of educating. It's more of meeting. It's just getting the trust and showing actual projects that we've already done. And then feeling comfortable that, yeah, okay, I see it. Because a lot of these homeowners, they see that there's properties building, getting built down the street, but they don't know what's going on. And then when I come around and I tell them what's going on, how we could partner up, their eyes just open up to all the possibilities. And when they don't have to reinvest any more money into the project other than the value of the property, it's huge. So I can now own a 20, 25 unit building 
where I only have three units. I mean, it's amazing. It's awesome. So what we do, my financing background really comes into play a lot. What happens is since we have the financing for the construction and they come in with the value of their property, once it's completed and rented out, and believe me, it doesn't take long to rent them out. Then I refinance them. They get all their value of the property. We get all our construction money back. And now we have a property that's getting rental income and we have still equity in the property. So now every month, the person that was making maybe $1,000 of rental income is not getting many times over that with a high equity stake into a, a property. So going back to the question is educating them and showing them in actual facts, in actual numbers, what's going to happen or, or what could happen in that property that they own right now. When you guys are determining the, the back-end partnership splits, is it as simple as you, know, you calculate the value of the land and then however much cash you have to put up and that split is the equity split? Exactly. It's very simple. There's no magic to that. The numbers don't lie. And it is what it is. When we have a partner that wants to participate, then what happens is we find out exactly what we're allowed to build according to the city. Then we determine at that point, are we going to sell the property once built and rented or do we keep it long-term? And the best place to keep it long-term because it's, you know, why get rid of that cash cow when you can have, you know, this income coming in for as long as you want. And in the agreement, we we revisit every five years what we want to do with the property. And it has to be an agreement between us and the partner that what they want to do. Maybe some, eventually they're going to want to get bought out. Maybe they're going to want to buy us out. doesn't matter. I mean, it's just, still, it's it's a good play for both of us. And I would assume that you have those exit clauses written up so that there's a, a pre-existing agreement. And if one party wanted to buy the other out, you would have an independent valuation, et cetera, et cetera. Most definitely. Yes. Oh. Yes. That's what we do. And then, and then again, going back to my financing background, because we uh, have uh, close ties uh, and we fund our own commercial loans as well. It makes it very easy. Uh, I mean, it makes it super easy. Uh, for example, the project that we just got, we just closed on last week, it was 1.1 million, financed six, 600,000 and only asked for investors to come in for the 500,000. When it's all said and done, this property is going to be valued at 4.6, you know, minus a construction and the original payout. But it's all financed after that. So we don't ask for large amounts. We're not taking the full 1.1, you know, from investors to buy the property and then another $2 million to complete it. You know, we're not going back to investors over and over. We're using financing. So we're using investors investor part of financing, institutional financing. And it's easy for us because we totally understand the financing part of it. Yeah. Having that vertical integration to that realm is such an advantage for you guys. Yes. One of our advantages working with us because we have those and everybody that works with us have always has been in the industry from, I mean, I have people that have been in the industry for 36 years, 30 years in financing and commercial underwriters. We're actually a mortgage bank doing investment funding as opposed to what other ones that we've seen in the past where, for example, you might have, uh, let's say, Realty Mogul. There were tech people going into the real, the commercial funding funding or crowdfunding, and they had to hire people to cover the holes that they had the other way around, which is, I think, is a big, big advantage. Having that real estate background, it's really important. Um, there's so many niches, like we were talking earlier. You have to know the corridors. You have to know the building codes. We were looking at a portfolio of properties in the LA area here recently. Somebody was telling me that if you have more than 16 units in a property, you have to have an on-site leasing person. I'm just curious for my own education. Is that true? Or what? Is there any restrictions around number of units to property manager that you run across? 
It's true, and, it, and it's mostly because of the servicing to the tenant. If you don't have somebody there, it's going to create chaos. Property's not going to be maintained. Things are going to happen in that property. I mean, there's there's so many things that can go wrong. It's the best thing to have property management. On-site, that depends on the, on the owner of the property. But uh, property management, definitely, for sure. So you're required to have property management, but not necessarily on-site. Not necessarily. I would do it from 15 units and up. Have on-site management only because it's the best thing to do to keep uh, maintain your property, your asset in a good shape and prevent issues from happening, depending on where the property is located. Yeah, that obviously plays a huge role. Are you trying to deliver a white glove treatment in your, your near Beverly Hills or are you somewhere else in, in more of a, a working class neighborhood and people are concerned about maintenance requests, et cetera, et cetera? Right, right, exactly. So, Victor, you've got a varied career in real estate. It seems like as I was digging into your background, that that's kind of the constant and you're just dealing with real estate, whether it's from the debt side or the investment side or the development side, you've done a little bit of everything. And you've also been through a lot of market cycles. What's the key to your success to longevity in the industry? You know, what would be a, a principle or two that you would pull out as directly responsible for your success? It would be consistency. You have to be consistent and persistent in what you're doing. Decide on what you like and just be consistent and persistent on it and you're going to be successful. This is my second mortgage bank that we own. So the first mortgage bank, we bought it back 1994 and we started with two loan officers and we grew it to 288 loan officers and 36 branches in the Western states. I stay in the Western states because we have a, a certain way of funding, which is not like the Eastern states. We have escrows and titles where Eastern is attorneys, wet funding as opposed to dry funding. Right. I concentrate mostly on the Western states. I've always done it. And I closed all my offices in 2007 after the financial crisis. I had to because such a big turn, everybody got hit some way or another. We didn't have bad loans or anything like that. It was hard for a lot of people to adjust to the new market. The subprime went away and everything went away. We were still approved for FHA direct endorsed lender. We took that off that company from really nothing to what I just mentioned. I had to close them down. I was spending too much money and I was spending $10 and getting two back. So it wasn't making any sense. So I closed all my offices, gave a couple away and just kept the corporate company. Then I started just, I said, okay, what's going on now? Because there wasn't so much credit being issued. The big opportunity at that point was commercial properties. I was buying based on terms. People needed to sell, but they couldn't because they couldn't get financing. So I would come in and buy on terms. I will pick up 25 units, 30 units with 10% down. The rest was seller carry back and taking over the note. And they just, for whatever reasons they were, they didn't want to continue with that project. So I would come in and take over the property. So I took over a lot of commercial property during that time. But then at the same time, I was getting people asking me, are you going to come back? Are you going to be a lender once again? Are you, what are you going to do? So I did buy up the VUG again. And I start, I, I went out and I bought a mortgage bank that was already existing. I did not want to start from the very, very beginning as a broker. So I bought a mortgage bank had already had a, a history. And then that's the second bank that we have right now, the mortgage bank. But I took a different approach on this bank because the first one I was opening up branches, filling up with agents. And you know the, the story, you have 15 agents, but only five of them are really working. There's a lot of exposure, a lot of expense in that. So what I did now is we went a lot into uh, social media marketing where I'm investing in my loan officers and helping them and their partners generate more business. So in turn, we get the loan back. We're doing the same amount of volume that we were doing before with 36 branches with just 20 loan agents. We're doing quite a bit and much, much better and more efficiently 
than the very first one because we're working directly with the loan officers and really helping their partners generate more business by social media. That was a total different change. And then we have a call center, call center for Spanish speaking people. We have a call center for Chinese people and a call center that concentrate on uh, Filipino Tagalog. So we have different markets, different call centers. It's more efficient the way I'm running that. But the thing is this, I didn't give up. It was persistent. It was consistent. I had to continue. And everything that I do, I try to do in the realm of real estate. There's so many opportunities right now, so many businesses that you can buy, so many ways that you can go, but it's very distracting. I've always stayed just in the mortgage banking. Our next step would be to buy an actual commercial bank. Is that what you're aiming at is the next step for Griffin Crack Capital? For Griffin Crowd Capital, it's its own fund and we're on investments, but that's connected somehow with the, the real estate lending side of it because it's connected. It's interconnected one way or another. As you were describing all that, Victor, I mean, consistency, persistence, very important. I think that's a common thread to people who have success over a longer period of time. But you also are problem solving. I thought that was interesting. Like you've reimagined it in a couple of different ways. You've adapted to the times. You were doing owner carry. You're now doing interesting partnership models, you know, around transportation corridors. What do you attribute that skill set? Not everybody is able to solve those types of problems or think in an inventive way. Why you? Well, what I've always done, you have to look ahead. You have to see what's going on. You have to always kind of like it's kind of hard to explain, but you I always see ahead. What, what's happening? What's going on? How am I going to adjust to what's going on? Like right now you're saying, okay, what you see right now is the market is so high in value right now. When is it going to pop? When is it going to change? When is it going to make it adjust again? And when that adjusts, now it's going to be a buyer's market, not a seller's market. How are you going to prepare and adjust for that? What's going to happen when that happens? when it becomes a buyer's market and what opportunities does that bring? Just kind of have to look at that. I guess it's experience. I guess it's, it's gone, gone through these uh, financial adjustments. I've been to maybe two or three of them already since the Charles Keating was the very first one back in the savings and loan industry. I don't know how old you are, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, I, I've studied history. I was not around then, but yes, I'm aware. Saw that. And, and the last one to the persistent and consistent is action. You have to take action. You can't just talk about it. You have to actually take action. I've always been taught you always have to have the goal. You have to have the blueprint. Where are you going to start? Where are you going to go? You have to have that that roadmap. Then it's uh, persistent, consistent, and action. If you don't do any one of those three or all three at the same time, it's you're not gonna you're not gonna make it. But as long as you do those things, I've always seen that we will accomplish what you want. Having those three things in concert really important. Are you going to be consistent and taking action? Are you going to be persistent? keep it up over a long period of time? And then are you actually taking action? It's not quite as simple as mix these three things and you'll be wildly successful, but people tend to overcomplicate it. It really is not a function of having the best idea. It's just, hey, can you be consistent and show up taking action? Yeah, exactly. It shouldn't be that complicated. It really isn't. I mean, if you really think about why haven't I done something, you'll have the answers. One of those three, you either weren't persistent, you weren't consistent, or you didn't take action. At an interesting point in the market cycle, Victor, and you've alluded, you've seen several of them. What are you watching? Um, you, you're in the mortgage business. You see a lot of those loans being made. You know, Interest rates have ticked up a little bit. The 10-year has been somewhat volatile as we're recording this towards the end of January. What do you pay attention to that would tell you that, hey, maybe the market conditions are shifting at a, at a macro level? Again, going with not making it so complicated, if I start listening to the news, the sky is falling every day. So I don't, I try not to do that. I do look at it, but I don't go off of that 
I go off of the streets. I go off of what's going on in the business right now. What I see in values, what I see in the loan transactions going on, you know, the real estate agents telling us that, you know, how many offers are getting and multiple offers and in certain areas. That's what I look at. I look at the actual what's really going on, because even when rates are up, that doesn't mean business slows down. It means an opportunity just shifted and you have to see how you're going to take advantage of that opportunity. So people say right now, as far as lending goes, they say, you know, rates are going to go up. Everything's going to slow down. Well, no, what's going to happen is people are going to think, hey, listen, let me buy something before rates go up. There's going to be those wave of people that want to buy before rates go up higher. You can't just go off of one one way of thinking. You got to look and see what's out there. What's the difference out there? Fantastic. Well, Victor, if folks want to learn more about what you're doing and how they could potentially invest alongside of you, where can folks find you? GriffinCrowdCapital.com is is our, our main site. You can see some of our projects there that we have and some that are coming on on board. What's going on is that we work with accredited investors. That's what we have. Our fund is set up to, for credit investors. There, there's a main side. Otherwise, it's a victor at griffincrowdcapital.com or you can call me direct at 323-810-9568. We could chat, see what you want to do, see what you're interested in and see if what I'm doing interests you at all. Fantastic. Well, Victor, thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you to our audience for joining us on another episode of the Daily Real Estate Syndication Show. I'm your host, Sam Rust, signing off. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the Real Estate Syndication Show. Please subscribe and like the show. Share with your friends so we can help them as well. Don't forget, go to lifebridgecapital.com where you can sign up and start investing in real estate today. Have a blessed day.